Hello, listeners. I'm just cutting in real quick to let you know that uh, we recorded this episode before Treat Williams' recent tragic passing via motorcycle accident. So um, I just wanted to point it out that we, we have heard what happened, um, but this was recorded before the events took place, so it's why it doesn't get mentioned in the episode. But um, it's a very uh, tragic loss. Uh, 71 is old for a motorcycle accident, but I just wanted it to be mentioned in the episode that we're aware of what happened, and obviously it's terrible. Um, but uh, but we won't be bringing it up on the show because we recorded it about 12 hours before he actually passed away. So without further ado, here we go. Kneel before Zod! You can't go! All the plants are gonna die! I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil! Don't touch it! The name's Pliskin. No more! Hang on! Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper, released November 13th, 1981. It was written by Jeffrey Allen Fiskin, based on the book by J.D. Reed, with uncredited rewrites from Ron Shelton and Buzz Kulik and W.D. Richter, directed by Roger Spottiswood, with uncredited work from Buzz Kulik, John Frankenheimer, and Robert Mulligan, and released by Universal Pictures. This is a mess. Yeah. <laughs> the production is a huge mess. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some talented people in there. Yeah. But... On November 24th, 1971, a hijacker on board Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305 announced that he had a bomb and demanded a $200,000 ransom, $1.4 million in 2022 bucks. Uh, I don't know why I didn't go to 2023. Insanely... Following the man's instructions, they landed the plane in Seattle, let the passengers off, collected the requested ransom in cash, and then took off again to Reno to refuel for an eventual flight to Mexico City. But 30 minutes away from Seattle, he dove from the tail end of the plane with 21 pounds of $20 bills and a parachute. The man, who identified himself to passengers as Dan Cooper, was never seen again, and experts presume that the jump did not go as planned. The name Dan Cooper became D.B. Cooper when several news reports conflated the name that the man gave the passengers with the name of one-time suspect D.B. Cooper, an actual person. Unlike in the film, it was pitch black and raining at the time he jumped out. Also, the parachute was like a military-style parachute right. that you can't steer. Yeah. During the production of this film, a portion of the actual ransom money was discovered on the banks of the Columbia River. The case was not officially closed until 2016. It is, to date, the only unsolved case of air piracy in the history of commercial aviation. Wait, you're saying when they filmed this movie, they While found... it was being filmed. Not not the production didn't find it. Someone discovered cash in 1980 at the same time right, this movie was Right, but that was, was like 10 years later. Uh, or nine years later. Nine years later, yeah. You know, nine or 10 years later, yeah. Yeah, it took that long. That's crazy that it was still around right a string of copycats led to much stricter security protocols in most airports which were obviously expanded again in the wake of the 9-11 attacks in 1980 jd reed's novel freefall was published in which he wrote a fictionalized continuation of the events of the famous hijacking 
A film adaptation was quickly greenlit, but it started on the shakiest possible grounds. The working titles changed over the course of the production from just Pursuit to Freefall to Life of D.B. Cooper. I would say they ended on the best option of these because you can't not mention D.B. Cooper in the title. Yeah. Right. And it's not about the life of D.B. Cooper. It's about a chase that happened after he committed yeah, yeah, this yeah. crime. Yeah, they, they came up with the right answer. Yeah. The problem is that they picked the wrong story. Because they don't show because, the actual plane stuff. Well, okay. And maybe, um, and maybe we should talk about this at the end, but like this this the, the the place that this movie starts is where the actual story in theory leaves off right yeah and i think that that's wrong because like now i mean i only vaguely know the story of db cooper and i only actually learned about it because i was i was working on an episode of leverage that covered the same story i had <laughs> okay. not heard about it before yeah. that episode and you know, if I didn't know those things, and I didn't, and, and and I and I probably wouldn't have. They never really explain what happened in this movie. No, I mean that that nothing happened. Well, I'm just saying they 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 only start with a guy jumping out of a plane and he has money, right? But you yeah. don't really understand how why he did this or yeah. yeah, why it happened, how it got how he got to that point, and you kind of put some stuff together, uh, you know, like as he's leaving that he had prepared all this stuff, but like. Yeah. I think it, it's a much more interesting story assembling the heist, yeah, and then executing the heist than and then what if you they want to tell more after did. that. Do that, yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, the the interesting things of the story happened before, and it's very it's the same problem we had with Tom Horn last season, where it's like we're telling the least interesting chapter of Tom Horn's life here. Um, I mean, I, I agree and disagree with that. Um. Because we get a good semblance of who Tom Horn is, but uh, but this movie just literally starts with him jumping out of an airplane, yeah. right? Yeah, with no context. So if you don't know who DB Cooper is, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, people did at the people time, did though. because yeah. it was within ten years of this actually yeah. happening. But I think that it doesn't hold up because people don't know this story. That's probably true. I I um I I knew of the story. In bits, and most of the knowledge that I know comes came from um, uh, the BuzzFeed Unsolved. So, <laughs> okay, like if you watch the show with uh, uh, I think it's Shane and Ryan, um, they do really fun recaps of oh, famous cool. unsolved mysteries, and this is one of like the ones that they do. Uh, but yeah, like the, like there's all kinds of stuff. Like he he handed the stewardess a note. Um, there, there's like just stuff that was details going that on. get left out. Yeah, yeah. How did that actually happen, though? Because don't we not negotiate with... I mean, because I would consider this terrorist. It seems all kinds of crazy. There's no way they would let this plane take off Mm -mm. the the way that this happened. It's just like, sorry. I suppose we have a bomb on a plane. What are you going to do? Maybe we have had different protocols, but we definitely don't negotiate with terrorists. I can't imagine the logic of... We don't give into ransoms. It's super unsafe to have this bomb here on a plane on the runway yeah. let's put it way up in the sky yeah. where it's safer no yeah. yeah and and once you got rid of the passengers that's that's your leverage not the crew yeah the crew the crew signed up for this yeah, yeah. like they, they, they had they, sharpshooters ready to kill the whole crew just so they could take out this yeah i mean you know <laughs> but i mean but no but like they have insurance they're like the, the airlines protected for those people on the plane yeah. they're not protected for all the passengers right that's so, the that's the the 
liability situation. Yeah, so it's like now that the passengers are gone, just let it blow up. Yeah. <laughs> I say let them crash. <laughs> exactly. Jeffrey Allen Fiskin was hired to adapt the story to the screen with To Kill a Mockingbird, Inside Daisy Clover, same time next year director Robert Mulligan in the director's chair. Mulligan had barely begun production when he was fired for reportedly going over schedule. Director Mulligan was replaced with Manchurian candidate Reindeer Games director John Frankenheimer, who attached Henry Winkler in the lead. Winkler left, citing creative differences, so Frankenheimer recast with Peter Coyote and later Treat Williams. Once they'd finally settled on a lead actor, they only made it through one scene before Frankenheimer 2 was fired, this time for allegedly being drunk on set, and the Hunter director, Buzz Kulik, was brought in to finish the directing. Man, I would rather see a Frankenheimer version yeah. or or Daisy Clover version. Like, I mean, both of those sound like much more competent filmmaking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Roy Scheider, who had been cast as Gruen, stepped away with Frankenheimer, and the part went to Robert Duvall, who has since said that he wouldn't have taken it if he weren't broke at the time. It's like, you just got nominated for Great Santini, like, mm-hmm. last year. What are you talking about? Why are you broke? You're you're in the Godfather movies. Kim Basinger had been hired to play Cooper's wife, but Kulik replaced her with Catherine Harold, who he had just directed in The Hunter. Kulik also brought in uncredited writer W.D. Richter to heavily dramatize the script. When he turned in his cut, it was a dour Vietnam vet story with none of the adventure that they'd sought to graft onto the D.B. Cooper legend, and the third director was also fired. Terror Train director Robert Spottiswood was asked to reshoot a scene and then edit it into what they had set out to make, but Spottiswood explained that what they wanted wasn't in the dailies. So he brought in another screenwriter, Ron Shelton, to do yet another draft of the script, and together they would reshoot 70% of the final product. This is all starting to make so much more right? sense. Because it feels very disjointed and it's weird. It's so disjointed, and it's just... And it, there's a couple of moments that no just point. make no sense There's no me. point to any of this stuff. Yeah. Also, when you fire the first director for going over schedule... And then rewrite the whole movie twice <laughs> after that? <laughs> and then shoot 70% again. <laughs> yeah. I was like, boy, sure, I guess I should have just let that one guy yeah. go. Might as well just dumped all that money out of a plane <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. To coincide with the film's release, Universal Pictures, the eventual distributor, offered a million-dollar reward for any information leading to the identity of the hijacker, but obviously they got to keep their money. The legend of D.B. Cooper has played a part in many titles since the initial event. Burt Reynolds played a D.B. Cooper stand-in in the 2004 comedy Without a Paddle. D.B. also got his own In Search Of episode. The lead character of Twin Peaks is named D.B. Cooper. An episode of the recent Disney Plus series, Loki, implies that Cooper was actually the titular god of mischief. Yeah. You watched that show? Mm-hmm. I didn't watch that show. Yeah. But yeah. he jumps out of a plane. But right. I got that reference. Yeah. Because of the episode of Leverage. <laughs> You're supposed to say, I understood that reference. I understood that reference. I think uh, he might also be the reference that the MacGyver episode is making when they're in a prison camp and they're forced to look for the money that the guy buried in the caves mm. because that character is named bb bartell oh, trying yeah, to find bb yeah, yeah. bartell's gold um which i think is also kind of the plot of holes which i th- i think literally ripped off a macgyver episode <laughs> <laughs> because it's about a bunch of people in a prison camp digging for a guy's gold um there's also um an entire story arc of justified oh okay uh, about um a guy who had jumped out of a plane with a bunch of money and the money was never recovered but the guy was arrested yeah um, and it's all about 
this the legend of this guy and where he is now and what happened to that money. Interesting. We start with a plane flying over the mountains and the narrator eases us into the story, starting with the details of the true event that serves as the jumping off point, if you will, for the <laughs> fictional rest of the story. On Wednesday, November 24th, 1971, at 6.27 p.m. aboard Flight 305 from Portland to Seattle, the following event actually took place. What happened after that is anybody's guess. What event? Though? I, like, it frustrated me. Stealing the money from no, the plane. No, I know that. But nobody else does. But you got to give context for your movie. Yeah. Like, the guy jumped out of a plane. Like, what the hell is going on? They knew this wouldn't have a home video life. They were like, if you don't watch this opening weekend, we'll just set it on fire. <laughs> and yet it has a Blu-ray. We hear the pilot's communications with the nearest airport, and they mention someone on board who is instructing their flight plan. The flight has been redirected to Reno. The landing gear are released, and the man who is calling himself D.B. Cooper heads to the back of the plane to skydive out of the rear hatch, which, in the aftermath of this event, now those hatches don't open when the plane is in flight. I don't know why they did before, Yeah, but they did. Before he jumps out, we can see that D.B. Cooper will be played by Treat Williams in this film. We watch him plummet from the plane, and his parachute opens to triumphant music before he gets stuck in a tree. We cut to a plane landing at an airport, and we see Robert Duvall as insurance investigator Bill Gruen awaiting its arrival. He's here representing the insurance company who provided the money used as a ransom. Who? But who's... Where did this money actually... I, I, this this film does such a terrible job. The airport job. reached out to their own insurance company. Okay, so it's the airport's money? They're the ones who are being threatened. Or the okay. airlines, right? Right, yeah. Okay, I guess that I guess that makes sense. But they never actually say that. They're right, just they like don't. he's an insurance company. I'm like who's insurance also, company? Also, he's <laughs> acting like he's a cop. Like yeah. he breaks into the crime scene before the police are even on the plane. Well, th- this is very similar to the character like Faye Dunaway would play in Thomas Crown Affair. Sure, yes. Like uh the money's stolen and she's in the, in the original Thomas Crown Affair, it's he robs, it's money it's stolen. Yeah. And she is with insurance. She's a bounty hunter, essentially. Well, well that's what I was going to say. I mean, it's very much a bounty hunter-esque you, you, Yeah, you role. have to be on top of it, yeah. and you have to be ahead of the game. Gruen hops on the back of an emergency vehicle to snag a ride to the airplane before the police can get on it. He climbs in the rear hatch to look for the hijacker and finds the bomb in a suitcase and a woman locked in the lavatory. Gruen frees the flight attendant from the lavatory just as the bomb squad make a determination that the quote-unquote bomb is just stereo wire and Play-Doh. We cut back to the woods where DB is climbing down the tree he was stuck in. A pair of hunters on horseback pass by underneath him. He retrieves a fake beard from one of the duffel bags and applies it to his face. The costume he's thrown together doesn't make any sense at all. He's in a three-piece business suit with a giant beard like this weird scraggly beard and a dodger's cap and he's smoking a cigar a great big bushy beard (laughs) yeah what is happening we cut to an office full of witnesses where gruen is trying to trace the evidence of the money that db stole many fbi agents are interviewing witnesses and in the corner we see the classical db cooper sketch as a man describes the hijacker we cut back to the woods where db has walked maybe a hundred feet before deciding his costume was dumb and he tears off the beard and hat and throws them on the ground where investigators can find them and follow his trail because he's an idiot for some reason the next morning he's still wearing the whole three-piece suit that he hijacked the plane in and he's just walking around in the woods like that they're looking for you right here 
He finds a backpack that he stowed away in a rock formation and retrieves a hunting rifle from it. We cut back to Gruen, who is now having breakfast with the flight attendant that he freed from the plane. They're still discussing DB, and she mentions that he was wearing a bracelet. What do you mean a bracelet? You mean he was a transvestite hijacker? But then when she describes the bracelet, it matches the one Gruen has on now. <laughs> is Gruen trying to tell us something about himself? Yeah. Oh, oh, you mean like this bracelet? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. What is that? Elephant hair. Mountain yard. Vietnamese. He asks her to come with him to look at a database of faces and try to identify the hijacker. She would rather get some sleep, but he's authorized to offer her 10% of the stolen cash, and this changes her mind. We cut to a news desk where anchorman Howard K. Smith, as himself, gives us a little exposition. Meanwhile, in this country, law officers continue to search for a man who is perhaps the cleverest and certainly the most audacious outlaw in recent memory. This is the second day of the mysterious and dramatic disappearance of a man using the alias D.B. Cooper. There are 3,000 armed men scouring that forest now. Unfortunately, 2,800 are would-be hunters out for the opening of the deer season. So careful, D.B. So is he lying? Is Gruen lying to the flight attendant that, that she's eligible for 10%? No, I, th I think he, he is because authorized Because isn't that, that what he's after? Isn't he after the getting the 10%? Is that all he's getting, just 10? I, I, I mean, I would think that, that that's all he would get. I think he's in it more for the glory anyway. Maybe he's talking about just giving her the 10000 because all he wants to do is catch this guy. He doesn't care about the money. Because he's throwing a lot of money out left and right this whole right? time. When we cut back to DB, he's dressed as one of the hunters. We see police stopping other hunters on the trail who present their hunting licenses. Gruen shows the flight attendant a collection of faces on a computer screen. Back in the woods, D.B. Cooper finds a couple skinny dipping in a river and aims his gun at them under a dramatic score. I assume the joke would be that he's using the scope to watch them have sex by the water, but instead he takes aim at their mini keg and fires on it. They are understandably shocked, and he apologizes from across the river, claiming to be a beginner, but there was nothing out here he could possibly be aiming for other right. than them and their shit. And he's like, just standing right out in the open shooting at them. They know he's a psychopath trying to kill them, and he slowly wades across the river giving excuses as they frantically dress and then run to their motorcycle to leave. This seems like a really dumb way to draw attention to yourself if you're trying to be discreet, but it turns out he needed to clear the area so he could unbury the jeep he covered with branches on the hillside. As they're flipping through faces on the computer back at the insurance office, Gruen finds a photo of Paul Gleason playing a man named Remsen. And before the woman can say whether or not he resembles the hijacker, Gruen explains that this man died in the war. Or at least, he was never recovered. It says missing in action on his, on his file photo. After a few more faces, we see Treat Williams, the actual hijacker on screen, and she seems to recognize him. His file comes up on a second monitor, and we can see his name is J.R. Meade. He was born in 1940 in West Point, New York, and he's been evaluated as an impulsive loner, very intelligent, lacks correct military attitude. He was in Vietnam from 66 to 67 and Laos in 68. He was awarded the Silver Star and a Purple Heart before he was discharged on April 9th of 1969 and his residence is in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Back at the river, J.R. Meade stupidly throws a fat wad of cash in the river, I guess to imply that he didn't survive the jump, a theory that would be directly contradicted when they find a fake beard covered in spirit gum. <laughs> Who put this on? We see Meade tucks the rest of the money into a compartment under the passenger seat of his Jeep. Suddenly, we get a flashback of Sergeant Gruen dressing down Meade at a ranger boot camp. Gruen seems convinced already that Meade is in fact D.B. Cooper. We get a long montage of the two men in the past 
chasing each other through an obstacle course, with Gruen besting Mead at every possible turn. Gruen barges into his boss's office in the present at the insurance company and demands the Cooper case. He says he has a hunch and the man doesn't want to hear it. He threatens to fire him instead. I want you to put me on this case. I'll fire your ass first. Well, why don't I just quit and take my hunch with me? Great. Terrific. Quit. Save me the embarrassment of having to fire the great Bill Gruen. I mean, never again will I have to uh, explain to the reporters about all the doors you kicked in when your hunches were wrong. Make it easy on me. Quit. The man demands to hear the hunch before he agrees to anything, but Gruen won't share it, and he says, call the New York office and fire me. Yeah, Lily, give me Mr. Thornhill in New York. You're not going to embarrass me or the company. Cooper's already done that. Just before the man announces Gruen's firing to their overlords, Gruen mentions that if they solve the case, that his boss can get a job at the New York office, which is presumably a cushier branch than the one he's at. I'm going to use Bill Gruen on a case. These little scenes of Gruen arguing with his boss and Cooper ditching the beard serve literally no purpose other yeah. than to stretch out the story because there isn't enough here to make a movie from. And it's still an hour and 40-something minutes. It's like, this could have been one twenty-seven. Like, just cut it down. Is this the adventure that you really wanted to incorporate yeah. into yeah. this film? really want to hear this guy argue about branch transfers at their insurance company? Do I care about that? It's so exciting. It's, it's like all the big political drama in Star Wars it's episode exa- one. Yeah. <laughs> They're just doing, like, some tax blockade or something. Meade comes to a roadblock and a pair of troopers demand his ID and hunting license. By now, he's actually shot a deer and strapped it to his vehicle so he looks legit. They ask him to get out of the car and they find the compartment where he hid all the money. They ask him to open it and he's understandably reluctant until he does and there's no money in it. Gotcha, viewers. Yeah. (laughs) We sure tricked you, people watching this movie. He pulls up to a lookout point and spots a family that he can offer the deer to free of charge. Hand over here? Sure. What's the catch? No catch. I don't need it. I don't need it. I'm just like killing innocent animals. Yeah. What? I just fucking hate deer. Just before he drives away, he takes his boot knife and he cuts open the deer to remove the two bags of cash that he'd stuffed inside it to hide it from troopers. Couldn't use the hole that you put it in with? Why did you have to cut this deer open again to get the stuff out? Did he sew it closed? Yeah. Did the deer heal? <laughs> Is this deer still alive and sleeping? Or, or did it go in through the, the Ooh, back you, door? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. No. Next, he drives his Jeep into a small log cabin in a field with a blanket for a wall on one side, and then he trades it inside the building for a different truck, which he then drives through the blanket out of the building. Soon, he's back in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, home of the Grand Tetons. He pulls over to park and takes a boat out onto a lake before tossing the money bags overboard with a marker string tied to a branch above the water so he can come back and find it when he needs to. Now we cut to Mexico, where that Remsen character, who Gruen said was dead, hops off a bus and meets with a Mexican police captain. He tells El Capitan that he has some information about where illegal border crossings are happening and offers it up in exchange for $500 and a plane ticket to Wyoming. Border crossings into Mexico or out of Mexico? Mexico doesn't care about it either way, <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I don't I don't know why. Maybe, maybe this is uh, north of the border. It must be. I was going to say because. But he's calling him El Capitan, and he, they're clearly in Mexico having this conversation. But Mexico doesn't give a shit if it crosses the border. Maybe they did at the time. I don't know. I'm not 1971. El Capitan doesn't agree until the price comes down to a plane ticket and $200. As he walks away from the table, Remsen mentions Meade by name out loud to himself, suggesting that he knows the identity of D.B. Cooper as well as Gruen does. 
We cut to Groen arriving at the workplace of Hannah Mead, wife of J.R. Mead, played by Catherine Harold, and she's just as adorable as every time we've seen her so far. She seems to run a boat rental service. The one used in the film is still in operation to this day and was owned by the film's local stunt coordinator who advised the river scenes. The production liked the name of his business, so they were like, we'll just use your business for this scene. I have some issues with the river scenes. <laughs> All right. She asks who he is, and he says Bill Gruen. Bill Gruen wouldn't be Sergeant Gruen, would it? Not anymore. No. God. Well, you could have fooled me. She explains that Jimmy, a.k.a. J.R., described Gruen as the biggest son of a bitch on earth. She says she hasn't heard from him in a while, but she knows he was in Alaska six months ago and then a boat somewhere. The phone in her office starts ringing and she walks to answer it. When she picks it up, we cut to the other end of the line and see Mead doing a character and pretending to need a boat for rent. Hannah recognizes him right away, but goes along with the character because she doesn't want to reveal to Gruen that Mead is on the line. The boat order takes on a graphically sexual nature, but she ignores his jokes and he gets impatient with her. Listen, I'd like to rent one of them uh, boat trips down the river you got. But I don't want to be stuck with no hairy old lumberjack, if you know what I mean. I kind of like to be bouncing along with this slim, beautiful, melon-breasted, long-legged woman. We have an opening uh, Wednesday afternoon. Baby, it's me! I'm back! He never seems to understand what she's doing, but manages to communicate that she should meet him at the sawmill tonight. After she hangs up, she asks Gruen what he wants with JR anyway. Gruen pretends he's here to offer a job at his insurance company. We cut back to Hannah's home and meet JR's father, credited as Brigadier, played by Ed Flanders, playing a song on the piano. She relays the contents of her phone call with JR and promises that she's not dumb enough to take him back again. Uh, when you don't go to see him, say hello to him for me, will you? We cut to a country western bar and everybody's dancing. Oh, we got both kinds. We got country and western. Hannah and Gruen are both here, but it's unclear whether this was an arranged meeting or if he followed her here or this was supposed to just be a coincidence. While they chat at the bar, a news story on D.B. Cooper comes on the television and the whole bar shuts up to listen to it. Who do you think D.B. Cooper really was? Might have been a woman. I think it's Howard Hughes. I think he's a black man. There were witnesses, people. <laughs> It was none of those three. <laughs> Hannah and Gruen are joined at a nearby table by Homer, played by Cooper Huckabee with a beard. Possibly a fake beard. <laughs> but he's just as gorgeous as he always is. I found this beard in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Trimmed it down real good? I just fucking love Cooper Huckabee. I feel like we really connected when we talked on the Phoenix Foundation podcast. Hannah tells Homer, the Huckabee character, that this Gruen is the one that JR was always talking about. They rope Gruen into an arm wrestling contest with Homer so that Hannah can sneak out the back door to meet up with JR at the sawmill. When Gruen realizes she's left, he abandons the contest to follow her. When she arrives alone to the empty sawmill, she calls out for Mead in the darkness, and he's left a trail of money stacks to lead her to him. As she finds each one, she revises her guess as to how he came by the money. Great, you robbed a liquor store. Real proud of you, Jimmy. You robbed a bank! You know you're not that clever? You were on a quiz show, that's it. Amusingly, her last sarcastic guess is the correct one. Uh, what the hell do you think you are, D.B. Cooper? Hannah? I did it. What? What do you mean? Oh my god. He tells her they can run off together and start a new life with the money he took. 
She puts up a convincing fight, but eventually surrenders to his charisma. I, I like that uh, he he's playing off of like the money that you have is, is nothing. It's nothing compared to the but when she throws it at the ground. He goes, oh, hold on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's not nothing. I got to take that money yeah. back. Suddenly, a third voice joins the party. Mean the party's over. Oh, shit. Hannah explains that the sergeant from Mead's past has been in town looking for him today, and now she understands why. Gruen promises not to turn him in if he returns the money because the insurance company doesn't care as long as they get the cash back. He will tell them that he found it in the wilderness and that Cooper is probably dead. And he'll still owe $10,000 to the lady who recognized Jeremy. Right. Mead turns on the machinery as a distraction so he and Hannah can separate and escape. Gruen is nearly fed into a row of circular saws until he climbs down from the equipment. Mead sets a secondary distraction in the form of a gasoline bomb, which he leaves in Gruen's car, and it explodes before Gruen can follow them. We cut back to Hannah's home, where Mead's dad is furious with him for what he's done today. Dad tells Hannah that she's too smart to run away with this idiot again, but she's doing it anyway. Mead tries to communicate that he's pulled off something that the whole country thinks is pretty impressive, and he wants some recognition for it from his father, but Dad can't see past the illegality of it. I'm not impressed, you know. You're still an outlaw. Oh, so I'm an outlaw. See it a couple times, don't mean much. Outlaw, outlaw, outlaw! The fight escalates into JR's father blocking the front door so his son can't leave, but the whole time they acknowledge that there's a back door that Mead just has too much pride to go through. Like, yeah. Hannah gets really annoyed at their stubbornness, and I do too. When Mead finally follows Hannah out the back door, they are one step out of the building when Mead's truck explodes in the same manner as Gruen's had outside the sawmill. Or more accurately, That was my truck. So they must be like right next to the sawmill. Because there's no way Gruen got there. Yeah. I don't know. This happens throughout the whole rest of the movie. That everything seems too close and they're walking distance. Yeah, that they're always able to keep up with each other in every case. And yeah, like, even when uh, people are on horse and one person's walking. Yeah, it just, it, it never makes sense uh, for the rest of the film. So, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't attribute them necessarily being close to each other here. Yeah. There's too many coincidences coming up. Gruen gives them one more opportunity to just hand over the money and get away free. He's got two guns pointed at Meade, but we hear a third gun cock, and it's Dad with a shotgun. He orders Gruen to put his guns down so that his son and daughter-in-law can get away. That's a stupid mistake, sir. Yes, well, I've made a lot of stupid mistakes in my life, sir. Dad offers up his own car to his outlaw and his in-law. He basically takes Gruen hostage so they can tell old war stories back in the house. Oh, I think you've heard them all, sir. Well, why don't you try me anyway? We cut back to the bar where Gruen strikes up a conversation with Homer again. This scene makes no sense and it was very frustrating. I was like, how am I misunderstanding this? I don't get it. He went to this same bar earlier tonight, like less than an hour ago, and he talked to Homer. He he was introduced to Homer by a mutual friend, Hannah Mead. She said, hey, this guy's my friend. You guys should arm wrestle. It'd be funny. Well, it's not even that, that this is a friend. This is the, this this is is the, the former this is sergeant. The guy. Yeah, he was he was JR's sergeant. So he knows JR very well. And now he's here. So, But now he's at the bar and he's telling Homer, oh, I'm just a representative of this company trying to give uh, insurance to somebody named, uh, what does it say here? Uh, JR and Hannah Mead. I'm supposed to meet the Meads here to give them their inheritance. It's like, weren't you in here with Hannah like mm-hmm. just a second ago? What are you talking about? Like, it feels like these were two different options and they accidentally included both scenes in the movie. It sh- they should have just cut the whole arm wrestling bar scene out of the beginning. It should have literally cut from her just 
cut right to her going to the sawmill and then he finds them there because he followed her there and that that should have been how that went i think the only reason to include an arm wrestling scene is if you rip the arm off and put it into a bucket of arms yeah right that's true i also feel like maybe it's a situation where like with a house explosion or something that if you have footage of cooper huckabee you just have to use it (laughs) when homer learns that he's here delivering inheritance then suddenly he's interested in working with this man and gruen keeps offering him cash to help get him to the meads as soon as possible we cut back to the lake where mead sunk the money and he's pulling the string up to retrieve it as he reels it in he tells hannah about all the amazing trips they'll go on together homer pulls up with a boat and gruen in tow and they get it in the water Hannah and JR are kissing on the lake when they notice that Homer and Gruen are here and they try to row to get away from Homer's motorboat. JR steers them into whitewater so that the motorboat loses its advantage because they have to take the motor off of the boat right. or else they smash it on rocks. <laughs> they just throw it into the water. Right. Yeah, Gruen offers Homer $500 to follow the man into the whitewater and he says, okay, $500 and you owe me a new motor. It's like, what? No, I just I just said 500 That's all I said. And, and you also, you pay me now. Right. Because, <laughs> like, what what is a promise worth, like, in this? In the, yeah. In, he already at, promised this other lady $10,000. Yeah. Like, after all, all these, after all this river scene, does Homer get paid? Right. Or well, not? I guess he promised the lady $20,000 because yeah. he, he promised her 10%, 10%. of 200000 Both boats go over eight-foot waterfalls. And as soon as the Meads are out of sight of their pursuers, they crash their boat on some rocks and then sneak on shore with the money to watch Gruen float by. He doesn't notice their detour and they celebrate. Okay, so you're not even going to mention this moment that when it smashes against the rock, the whole front of the boat breaks off and smashes her in the face. Mm. Yeah. Like hardcore. I rewound it like three times. I'm like, they didn't do that on purpose. She legit got- Was it Catherine Harold? I think it was. Yeah. I, well, or some. Regardless, I mean, either way, you I don't do that. think that they did it intentionally to the point where she she got clocked in the head. Yeah. With this boat. I did not chunk. catch that. It looked awful. There's so much of this that's just two boats floating and people struggling with oars yeah. that I just couldn't help but look away from it. For you got to go back and look yeah. at the, yeah. the the boat hitting the rock scene because she clearly got hit in the face hard. Huh. Also, uh, Duval or his stunt person is kneeling down inside the raft. Yeah. And that is something you do not do when you're going over whitewater. Yeah. Because there are rocks right at the surface and you've got your knees down in the mm. thing and, and you're going pretty fast. Oh, they hit your and legs and break you your just, legs. Yeah. yeah, you just get your legs broke. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, I feel like everything about this scene as they're going over the 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 falls here seems so unsafe. Like, it does not seem like they yeah. did this properly no i agree and and these waterfalls are way too big for these boats to be going over yeah because when even when the inflatable boat goes over the waterfall it looks like both guys fall out of it like in the first shot yeah they do yeah the meads walk uphill from the stream and try to flag down a ride as a car scoots by at the end of the white water gruen doesn't understand where the other boat went but homer assures him that they got off the river and left they're gone The Meads find the car that just blew past them with the keys in the ignition and decide to take it, assuming the driver is out taking a piss somewhere. But they're 10 seconds down the road when Remsen pops up in the backseat and puts a gun to JR's neck. This is one of those things I hate. I hate, like, not seeing somebody hiding in the backseat of a car when it's clear, visible. But I think what's worse than that 
is just the sheer coincidence of he sees I'm a right guy there. who's chasing these people mm-hmm. randomly through the woods. How does he know that they went down the river, happened to get out around here, and then would be looking to steal his car? Like, yeah. like there's just so many coincidences. I that- like to think that he was like he was literally driving down that road with like a map in front of him, like just trying to find the city first, and then he's like, "Oh shit, that's them." <laughs> I'm uh, just going to pull over right now. The only, yeah, and the, then hide in the back with a gun. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> the only thing I can think of is that this road is one of the roads that leads to their cabin. Sure. And and maybe it's just a really long road, but Right, but, no. but the fact that he's banking on them not having transportation in this particular location mm-hmm. right. and stopping and trying to take his is just so weird. Yeah. And, and not like just – it's like – Oh, here's a car. Like, let's push it down this hill. Like, yeah. <laughs> like any number. Of, this could go wrong in so many ways. Yeah. Hannah asks who this is, and Jr. refers to Remsen as an acquaintance. Acquaintances, good buddies, might be yellow peril or red peril, some kind of friggin' peril. Actually, really like Paul Gleason's character. Like, of everybody in this movie, I feel like he actually gets like the most funny stuff to say and do. Remsen explains that Jr. had a big mouth while they were serving together overseas and mentioned this particular hijacking plan, so Remsen knew exactly who to look for when it happened. Jr. starts driving faster and faster, and Remsen is getting more and more nervous until they crash the car between a pair of trees and send Remsen flying through the windshield, which feels like a completely different movie than what we've been watching yeah. so far. This, this seems like it's part of that upsetting Vietnam movie. Yeah. Where I'm just going to kill my, my friend. Yeah. It reminded me of uh, the end of Adaptation. Oh, yeah. When Donald goes through. And it's yep. just terrifying. I was really waiting for him to try to, like, signal to his To put on a seatbelt. To put on a seatbelt. Because yeah. yeah. he's, like, I think he's doing this on purpose, like, with the intent to crash. Yeah. Um, but he never gives her the Indiana Jones Yeah, signal. and I'm just like, dude, she's going to, like, she also has her arm out the window. I'm like, she's going to lose a limb here, buddy. Yeah. But but Remsen the whole time is trying to negotiate. Like, yeah, he's like, like bringing his what. price down yeah. to try and get him to stop. JR gets Remsen's gun and puts him in the trunk of their car because he's still alive, apparently. He survived this accident. Hannah helpfully draws a man with an arrow pointed at the trunk on the car's dust so that it's like if anyone finds this car, they'll know there's a person in here. I wouldn't have known from the drawing she did. but The Meads continue from here on foot because presumably the car won't start. Gruen finds the abandoned car and asks the man tapping from inside the trunk what happened. Goddamn tree came out of nowhere. Bang. (laughs) (laughs) When Gruen tries to let the man out, he recognizes Remsen and shuts the trunk again, demanding an explanation. Which way did they go? Which way did they go? Which way did they go? May I ask you something there, Sacagawea? What kind of view you think I got in here? (laughs) (laughs) The Meads nail some cash to a post and they steal a pair of horses from a forest cabin. Gruen sees them leave and follows them on foot. He hitches a ride into town on a VW bus that drops him off at a little hippie shop. He tries to buy the Ford Galaxy off the store's owner, and the guy resists selling until he hears a price. No amount of money can change my mind. I'll give you $500 for it. Sold. Again, this, who fucking cares? He could have taken the VW bus to wherever he's going in this scene. So he's already paid out or is in the hole over a grand yeah at this point. over 20 grand because he offered 20,000 to the flight attendant well yeah but that that that's only payable upon if she gives information leading to the identification of the hijacker which I she did and now he knows that it's jr mead and like you said 500 dollars to 
to Homer, $500 to this person. And this person he has to pay right now. Right. Like Homer, we, you know, we could assume that maybe he didn't pay or wouldn't pay because they didn't catch him. Or right. this is like, you know, or I'll pay you later. Well, but, and it's $500 and the cost of a motor. Right. That's true. Yeah. Gruen finds the horseback couple again and watches them ride for a while, well within view of them. Like, they're riding their horses toward him, and he's parked on the top of a ridge watching them through binoculars. Like, they see you, Gruen. They know you're right there. Later, he notices they've dropped off the horses with a woman who traded them for a car. She won't answer any more of Gruen's questions, so he approaches her children, who tell him that it was a rusty Chevy pickup that they drove off in. The Meads pass an 18-wheeler with D.B. Cooper Lives painted across the back, and they honk to celebrate. We cut back to Remsen, who's trying to trade a man fake drugs for a car, but the guy identifies at least some of it as baking soda. I don't believe I ever saw baking soda sold by the gram. Oh, man. Oh, I'm sorry, pardon. Some lowlife sold me a bill of goods. The rest of this stuff is strictly on a level. It's primo, I promise you. He talks the man down from $700 cash to $100 cash. But the guy takes all the drugs. Yeah. Yeah. I don't get that and like they're free he doesn't care are they well they're they're a part of the deal it's the drugs and money yeah so okay. they're all free for this guy but they were still arguing about the price when he was putting all the drugs in his pocket right yeah <laughs> after remsen pulls away we get the classic reveal that it wasn't even drugstore cowboy's car to begin with my wheels as they continue driving hannah starts making out with jr and then pulling her pants off she hops into his lap and they start fucking as they drive we see a chubby little possum crossing the road, and I think Remsen's plan was to hit it and then eat it. Yeah. But he misses the creature when he swerves at it. It's pointless. <laughs> so pointless. It doesn't cause an accident or anything. It's literally just an animal crossed the road. Next scene. The Meade's new truck dies, and they pull it to the side of the road, but they're still having sex in the cab even as it gets towed away. We cut to a mechanic played by R.G. Armstrong, who basically tells them that the car was totaled, but he fixed it anyway. It's like, you're not supposed to do that. Yeah. You're supposed to say it's totaled. You brought that vehicle in here. It was running rougher than a broke dick dog. Now it's running slick as snot on a doorknob. The total cost is $514, and they just throw the cash at the man. Of course, when they turn the key, it won't even start, and when they take a look under the hood, Remsen pops up with a gun in his hand and a spark plug in his mouth. I don't know why he has this wire in his mouth. I don't even know how he fits in an engine yeah. of a car. I mean, that must, he must have taken the engine out, right? Well, you can't. Then how would he stand up in this I don't know. That's what I'm saying. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. I think he did take the engine out. I think you're wrong. I think Rims is a very strong man. <laughs> While he has a gun trained on both of them, he leans over the open hood, and Hannah slams it down on his hand hard, and he drops the gun again. When they drive away later, we see they have cartoon marooned Remsen and a stack of tires. <laughs> like, it's just his head sticking out of the top yeah. tire. By coincidence, Gruen pulls up to the same mechanic in search of gas and directions, but apparently doesn't notice Remsen over there. Unless he, maybe he already got out. He calls his boss from a payphone and gets fired. Look, Hank, give me a little more time. I'm, I'm going to nail his ass. You're fired, hero. Don't come home. The plant call. They said, if you don't come in tomorrow, don't bother coming in on Monday. <laughs> Woohoo, four-day weekend. What do you mean, don't bother coming home? It's like, but I, I, I still live in that city. Nope. We took your house. It's like the, the Pepsi board in Mommy Dearest. It's like, well, you weren't using that apartment. Yeah. So it's ours now. You borrowed too much money to pay for it. The mechanic is surprised when Gruen pays in so many fresh 20s and mentions the couple who spent a load of cash earlier today. 
and even though they spent $514 at his establishment, he rats them out immediately on which way they went, even though this guy's clearly some sort of authority. It's like, point him in the wrong direction, they gave you $500. A few miles down the road, Gruen finds Remsen hitchhiking and offers a ride in exchange for information. 30 seconds later, when presumably he has the information, we see Gruen pull over to throw Remsen out of the car on the side of the road. Is this the last time we see Remsen in the movie? No, no, no. no. Oh, okay. back at the end. Oh, right, 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 yeah. at the very end. But but also, Remsen, yeah, just, you know, you, you give him directions to where things are. Yeah, you can't give him all the information or he doesn't need you anymore. We cut to an airplane graveyard where the Meads are taking a big white bag out of a plane and loading it into the back of their pickup. What is this? I guess it's... I think it's his stuff. I think he was living in one of these airplanes, and I think they're packing his things to leave. Why would you bring your things? I don't know. If you won the lottery, would you still push your shopping cart to your new house? (laughs) I don't understand. I guess he was living in this plane. I guess that's the implication. Well, because Remsen obviously knew he was there. Yeah. JR's spidey sense is tingling, and he tells Hannah to hide. She peeks out from inside the same plane, which for some reason has a poster for Charlie Chaplin's City Lights hanging in it. I guess he's like a film buff or something. Uh, suddenly, Gruen grabs her from behind and snags the money away. JR notices that Gruen flattened all the truck's tires, and in the absence of a car, he finds an improbably functional plane and starts it up while the owner of the junkyard shouts at him. JR spots Gruen's car on the highway and swoops down in the plane to tap his wheels on the ragtop a few times. When Gruen refuses to stop, JR gets more and more brazen and eventually bashes in the roof of the car with his landing gear, smashing the wheels fully through the roof so that the two vehicles are now interlocked and traveling down the road as one. Why did this plane even have gas in it? Right? If it's not supposed to work, why would you keep it fueled? Yeah. Um, But I like... uh, Gruen's response to the wheel coming through the car he's like he's hitting it and he goes get out of here <laughs> to like, the to the tire yeah I was like what who are you talking to there's, well yeah there's no way that he could even hear you yeah I, I don't even quite understand what his plan was I mean I, I guess that maybe he wasn't thinking that the goal was just keep up with the money stay mm. close by yeah. but like get him to wreck what's the plan yeah I think he is just trying to get him to veer off the road and crash just gotta keep on veering <laughs> just gotta keep on veering that's all when JR finally pulls back away, the wheel comes off in Gruen's passenger seat. JR tries to set the plane down in front of Gruen, but both men drive blindly over a six foot dirt ledge. I don't even understand what's happening here. Did he just fly off the road? Why didn't he just right. stay on the road he was on? Yeah. They exit their vehicles and sit down in the dirt next to each other. Still have your gun? <sighs> yeah. It seems JR has the upper hand here. How'd you know it was me? Not too many people could make a jump like that. Half of them are in jail, half are dead. You ought to have it right here. That is three halves, sir. Your math is wrong. Gruen asks how he'll spend the money. Meade tosses a stack at the fired insurance inspector by way of an apology, and they call it even. The pickup comes rolling down the road again, and the Meads leave together. So this should just about cover his trip, since he owes twenty grand to the flight attendant, right, and at least a thousand dollars to everyone else. Yeah, he's just going to give her this cash. I guess he could just say we didn't identify the guy. You were no help, lady. <laughs> Where'd you get this new car? Shut up. As they disappear into the sunset, we suddenly see Remsen roll up in I think Gruen's totaled car. Is that what he's driving now? Because the car is all screwed up. 
no, this is the this is the car he bought off the drug guy, right? Oh, you're right. Yeah, it's the stolen car. He decides to go after them as the credits roll, but it looks like he's going the wrong way. Like he doesn't notice the truck swerving back and forth across the road in the background and he drives straight across the intersection unless they're implying that the car doesn't turn like it seems like remsen's not following them like he planned to and that's the end of the film Oof. the pursuit of db cooper wait it couldn't have been the drug car because he was the drug car was before right. the gas station scene. yeah the gas station i I, th- I think he's driving gruen's fucked up car that drove off the ledge which doesn't make any sense because how does gruen get out of the desert he gave him money to buy a new car with. <laughs> From the desert? Yeah. But I thought the implication of that was that this car obviously doesn't run. Mm-hmm. Like like the one that they left him in the trunk of. Obviously, that car didn't run or else they would have just stranded him in the woods and driven it away instead of walking and stealing it, horses. None of, none of his storyline makes sense the entire time. Just right. Like, how did he get here? How did he know any of this stuff? I just don't understand. Yeah. I mean, the the real problem is that within 10 seconds it seems like gruen knows exactly who did this right and the whole point was covering your tracks you literally like took three or four different vehicles to get to where you were going to hide the money for no reason because you immediately go back and get the money like the same day and somebody already knows who you are you're you're you've already lost because they know who took the money yeah so it's so weird that only the only two people who know who DB Cooper is just by the style of crime. Right. That some guy stole money and jumped out of an airplane. That must be this guy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think it makes more sense that Remsen knows than that Gruen knows because Remsen is like, we served together, and at night you were like, you know what I'm going to do someday? I'm going to make them. I'm going to hijack a plane. I'm going to mm-hmm. make them land it. I'm going to make them bring a bunch of cash on board, and then I'll make them think that I'm going to fly somewhere, but I'll jump out mid-flight, and they'll never catch me. I'll have cars stored all over the place that I can leave the town. And and then when he read in the news that some guy did that in the same town that he was from, he was like, well, I know who did it. Now I just have to find him and get the money. Yeah. I, uh, I feel like skydiving has been a, a sport for a long time. Yeah. So – it would seem to me that any number of professional skydivers, right? Yeah, might be suspects. Yeah, I, I yeah, I definitely disagree with Gruen's assessment that it's like only four people on the planet could have pulled this off. Yeah, it's like I think literally anybody who's ever skydived could do it because all you have to do is skydive. Yeah, yeah, and he does it in the middle of the day in like great weather right. in the desert. And and they make, I mean, like they didn't. Uh, they make a point of saying that they gave him functioning shoots in the movie. Right. Uh, because they don't want the real story to get out, that they just gave him a bunch of anvils in a backpack. <laughs> <laughs> Wiley Coyote. The, that. Here's the spare. <laughs> uh, because, yeah, they bring it up in the movie that, you know, he asked for four parachutes, so they were, he was, they were worried that he might have somebody else jump, so they had to give him functioning parachutes. Right. But the real story, I believe, is that they, he was given a functioning military chute and a spare, but the spare was sewn shut, so it wouldn't have worked anyway. Huh. Uh, and so uh, that's a more that's a, again that's yeah. a much more interesting like concept. But <laughs> yeah, that's very weird that you would even do that because it's just like, what if he did do that to the flight attendant? Yeah. And it's like, oh well, her chute's not going to open. It's <laughs> a risk you take, but. Uh yeah, everything about this movie is is all these characters who just happen to know each other. Yeah. 
Um, and I don't think Peter Coyote could have saved it either, but mm-hmm. I think that if they'd gone with the Fonz, I would love this movie. The Fonz as as Cooper? Yeah. Or as, Cooper Huckabee as Cooper. Get Cooper oh, to play Cooper. Cooper to play Cooper. I, I liked Roy Scheider as Gruen. Yeah, I think that would work too. I think that's fun too. Yeah. But I think what they ended up with was not great. I, I don't actually think that Robert Duvall is bad as the character that he's playing. I just think that he does a lot of arbitrary stuff to yeah. try and fill a runtime. N- none of those people would have saved the lack of story here. Yeah. And, and, and Robert Duvall's only real action is to offer money to people. Yeah. Like that's the, he, he, he's just offering money to everyone he meets right. to get him information to get closer. I he, feel like it would be fun to exaggerate that. Where he just like just walks into a place and just throwing money around in a restaurant. He's like, "Has anybody seen?" Uh, oh no, hold on, sorry, I'm in the wrong place. Does anyone know DB Cooper? Here's some money. <laughs> Where's DB? Where's DB? Anyway, thumbs down. Yeah, thumbs down. Yeah, it's definitely a thumbs down. Uh, where's this going, letterboxed, Richard? Uh, I have it at 145. Okay. Which puts it below Full Moon High, but above Smokey Bites the Dust. All right. Jessica? I have it at 129, which is below Saturday the 14th, but above Rich and Famous. Okay. I have it in 125, uh, pretty close to you. Um, It's right under Strange Behavior and right above the Four Seasons. Our final director here was Roger Spottiswood. He previously directed Terror Train, and later he directs Turner and Hooch, Air America, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, and Tomorrow Never Dies. He also wrote 48 Hours and Another 48 Hours. He is the former son-in-law of Jack Palance by way of his marriage to Holly Palance, an actress who I quote often and never realized was Jack Palance's daughter. Mm. Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. Mm. Oh. The nanny from The Omen is Jack Palance's daughter. Oh. Isn't that crazy? But he only directed 70% of this movie, right? Spottiswood, yeah. Uh, that's that's a lot. That's more than half. Uh, uncredited director Buzz Kulik directed some very celebrated TV movies like Brian's Song and Bad Ronald, as well as features like Burt Reynolds' vehicle Seamus and last season's Steve McQueen's swan song The Hunter, also starring Catherine Harold. Director John Frankenheimer also uncredited. We saw him last directing The Manchurian Candidate. He also directed Seven Days in May, The 96 Island of Dr. Moreau, Ronin, and Reindeer Games, and he is rumored to be the biological father of Michael Bay. The novel here was written by J.D. Reed. No other IMDb credits for that guy. The writer here... Do you think he went by J.D. Reed specifically because of the D.B. Cooper? I wouldn't be surprised because um, I get the impression that this was kind of a package deal, that they had the story and that the book kind of came out as a part of the the deal kind of like with the fun house our last cooper huckabee movie that it was like they were kind of writing the book and the script at the same time to release them in conjunction with each other so i wouldn't be surprised if they specifically tried to make his name look like db cooper like oh maybe the author knows because he's the person who escaped the writer here uh for the screenplay was jeffrey allen fiskin for the first draft uh, he wrote Cutter's Way for us earlier this season, but not much else I recognized. Uh, the next uncredited writer was Ron Shelton. He came on to do everything for uh, the final Spottiswood draft. Um, after this, he wrote, like, all the sports movies, like, all of them. Every sports movie that people like. Bull Durham, which he also directed. White Men Can't Jump, which he also directed. Blue Chips. Cobb, which he also directed. Oh, the Great Cobb. White Hype. 
uh, Tin Cup, which he also directed, Play It to the Bone, which he also directed, and he has a screenplay and story credit on Bad Boys 2. Tin Cup is also good. Yeah. This is Cheech and Costner, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another writing credit for W.D. Richter, uh, uncredited. He previously wrote Slither, Bogdanovich's Nickelodeon, The 78 Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and so far on the show, Brubaker and All Night Long. His next credit was for adapting the script of Big Trouble in Little China, arguably the peak of 1980s cinema. He also directed The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. The music here came from James Horner. Now, I have to apologize to you because you watched a VHS quality YouTube rip of this movie. Yeah. Which the score is a near constant dueling banjos ripoff. Right. Sound alike. It's not the Horner score at all. Oh, really? The 720p Blu-ray version that I have now is the actual Horner score, and it's great. I actually really like the music. Oh, man, yeah. I, I, the whole You'll t- never watch it again yeah. to hear that score. No, I won't. <laughs> just, just listen to it. But uh, I, because, like, listening to the music, I was like, man, James Horner, what what were you what doing? What happened? Yeah. No, I, it seems very clear to me that they didn't have, there must have been some kind of rights issue with the soundtrack. Mm. And so when they put it on television or they put it on VHS, that they had to dub over it with some, like, aftermarket, dueling banjos they were just like i don't know what goes with river rafting yeah <laughs> let's look at the deliverance soundtrack uh, but uh but it's terrible and then the james horner one is actually really great uh, most recently we heard his work in deadly blessing wolfen and the hand this season he has too many credits to go over but we've heard his work so far in humanoids from the deep battle beyond the stars the trailer for breaker morant for some reason <laughs> <laughs> um well because i was using the Battle Beyond the Stars music. Right. I, I don't know how that was deemed something that fits this, like, Australian period drama. The film features an original song from Waylon Jennings called Shine. Uh, he's a celebrated musician who has worked with basically every big-time musician of the 20th century. But for whatever reason, despite the width and breadth of his work, I find that the first song I think of is always the Dukes of Hazard theme song. Yeah. Just the good old boys, never meaning no harm. Beats all you never saw, been in trouble with the law since the day they was born. One night, Jennings and three of his musician friends were boarding a small plane, and they were a seat short. Jennings agreed to drive instead, but his friends Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper were famously killed when their plane crashed near Clear Lake, Iowa. The cinematographer here was Harry Stradling Jr., he lit There Was a Crooked Man, Dirty Dingus McGee, Little Big Man, 1776, The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing, Rooster Cogburn, Midway, Convoy, Prophecy, and so far on the show, Carney, Up the Academy, SOB, and this, and he's back later this season for Buddy Buddy. The second cinematographer credited here is Charles F. Wheeler. He was the DP of Freaky Friday, The Cat from Outer Space, Chomps, and so far on the show, Disney outings, The Last Flight of Noah's Ark, and Condor Man. I was going to say, those are other, like a lot of Disney movies on yeah. the list. So. Uh, the first editor credit goes to Alan Jacobs, who also cut Death Hunt and later Lassiter. That's the uh, Tom Selleck mm-hmm. period movie. Uh, then the next editing credit is for Rob Roberts or Robbie. I don't know how to pronounce this. It's R-O-B-B-E, but it's not Robbie Roberts from Carney, <laughs> <laughs> the actor who is actually a musician playing a character in the film because robbie roberts isn't that the guy's name or is it robbie robertson that plays the character in carney but he was in the band um 
But Robbie Roberts also cut Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, and this is his final editing credit on IMDb. Robert Duvall played Gruen. We've seen him previously in MASH and True Confessions. He's also in THX 1138, The Godfather, The Conversation, Godfather 2, Apocalypse Now, The Great Santini, for which he was nominated against Jake LaMotta from De Niro last year. Later, he's in The Natural, Newsies, Phenomenon, Deep Impact, Gone in 60 Seconds, Get Low, and The Judge, among many, many others. Treat Williams played Mead. Before this, Williams had very small roles in Marathon Man, The Eagle Has Landed, Hair, 1941, and The Empire Strikes Back, and then he played the lead in Prince of the City. Last season, he appeared in a film called Why Would I Lie, which until recently I found impossible to locate, but listener Jason caught it on TCM one night and taped it for me, so a minisode of that will come eventually. No idea when. Honestly, I always think first of the substitute TV movie sequels, which we for some reason had all of at our blockbuster, yeah. but Williams took over for Behringer as the substitute in the original 96 film, making him the substitute substitute. My favorite Treat Williams joke. Uh, I will always think of him as Xander Drax from The Phantom. Oh, okay. Yeah. Catherine Harold played Hannah. Uh, she has said that working on this film was very difficult because the script kept changing and she didn't know her motivations or if she liked her husband or if she didn't like her husband or how the film was going to end. Uh, we saw her last year in The Hunter as Steve McQueen's pregnant girlfriend and earlier this season as Albert Brooks's girlfriend in Modern Romance. She's back later in Raw Deal and she also plays Larry Sanders' ex-wife on The Larry Sanders Show. Ed Flanders played Brigadier. He was President Truman in MacArthur, Colonel Richard Fell in the Ninth Configuration. He's back as Truman next season, voice only for Inchon. And most recently, we saw him as Dan Campion in True Confessions, also with Duvall. And he comes back for Exorcist Three as Father Dyer. Paul Gleason played Remsen. He's Richard Vernon in The Breakfast Club, a role that he reprises in Not Another Teen Movie. He's also Dwayne T. Robinson in Die Hard, and we've already seen him so far as detectives in He Knows You're Alone and Fort Apache the Bronx, and as an executive shit-talking Arthur in Arthur. He also worked with Duvall on The Great Santini. R.G. Armstrong played Dempsey. That's the mechanic. Uh, he was Big Bear in White Lightning, Sheriff Taylor in Race with the Devil, General Phillips in Predator, He's Louis Vendretti in six episodes of the Friday the 13th series. He's Pruneface in Dick Tracy, and he's the old man on Millennium. We've seen him so far as Quitner in The Ballad of Cable Hogue, Judge Simpson in Where the Buffalo Roam, and later this season he's back for Reds. He was also Sissy Spacek's shitty boss in uh, Raggedy Man, mm. who thinks everything's important to the company. You got to think about the company. Dorothy Fielding played Denise. Later she's Judy Brewster in Fright Night. Nicholas Coster played Avery, not to be confused with, what's the guy's name from Game of Thrones that everybody wanted to be on The Last of Us? Oh. Something like that. The guy with the silver hand and the tall lady. Jamie Lannister? Yeah, Jamie Lannister. Yeah, there you go. Nicholas Coster played Lionel Lockridge in 599 episodes of Santa Barbara and Mayor Jack Madison in 63 episodes of The Bay. We saw him last as Tatum O'Neill's father, Mr. Whitney, in Little Darlings. Cooper Huckabee played Homer. We had him in Urban Cowboy last year and Funhouse earlier this year. I discussed his work in 1980's Getting Wasted for a minisode this season for Patreon. I also had a brief conversation with him on our Phoenix Foundation podcast, and we bonded over an appreciation for Pee Wee movies because at the time he was auditioning for the Netflix Pee Wee film in which he appears as a minister at Pee Wee's shotgun wedding. 
Howard K. Smith played Howard K. Smith. He's a longtime anchor person for CBS and then ABC. He often plays himself, as in next season's The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. He's also reporting on the television in Close Encounters when Dreyfus is filling his living room with a model of the Devil's Tower. Christopher Curry played Hippie. That's the guy who sold his car. He was Captain Bosch in Chud, and he's Agent Stucky in Home Alone 3. Stacy Newton played Cowboy. Uh, Stacy also played Stacy in The Getaway and Bubba in Convoy. Pat Ast played the horse lady, who won't answer any more of Gruen's questions. She was Mrs. Venus in Foul Play, and we'll see her next in horror parody film Pandemonium. Charles Benton played Sharpshooter. He was Deke Thompson in Convoy. A lot of Convoy credits. Henry Kendrick played an FBI agent. He was Colonel Zachary in Hops. H-A-W-M-P-S. <laughs> Hops. David Adams played FBI interviewer. He was Sanford in Those Lips, Those Eyes, and more recently for us, he was a DMI guard in Looker. Stephen Blood played a co-pilot. We saw him last as a detective in our mini-sode review of Demented. Karen Newhouse played Girlfriend in Stream. She also played First Whore in World Gone Wild. Those are her only two credits. Naked Swimmer and First Whore. Richard Brown played Crop Duster Man. He was Swamper in New Year's Evil last season. Michael O'Hare played car owner. It took me a moment there to realize that we were talking about the guy with the planes. <laughs> yeah. That's not where my brain goes when you say crop duster. Crop duster man. Yeah, you remember that scene where he just walks through the room and everyone's like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and he played Swamper in New Year's <laughs> Eve last season. Perfect. Michael O'Hare played car owner. He was fuller in Chud. And Sanford Gibbons played state trooper. We've seen him now as a judge in Minnesota Cloud Dancer and as a cop at the roadblock for used cars. He's also Father Feeney in Tombstone. I think that's everything for The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find our socials at linktree slash vintagevideopod. What's that sound? We got one! That's right, it's a new patron, Damon Noyes. As a new patron, Damon now has access to 41 full-size 70s reviews and 40 minisodes. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Road Games, which IMDb describes like so. A laid-back American truck driver in South Australia starts to suspect a man driving a green van of killing young women along his route, and proceeds to play a cat-and-mouse game in order to catch him red-handed. We leave you now with the trailer for Road Games. Road Games. The truck driver plays games. The hitchhiker plays games. Aren't you kind of young to be hitchhiking out here all by yourself? Aren't you kind of old to be picking me up? And a killer is playing the deadliest game of all. Oh, he's just killed a girl. Did he make love to her first? I don't know. What's the difference? It makes a lot of difference. I think in order to play the game properly, we have to know what he thinks of women. Stacy Keach is quid. No, no, it's Q-U-I-D. D is in death to young girls, you cretin. Jamie Lee Curtis is hitch. Now oh, you're uh, looking for a little adventure. I could go to Disneyland for a little adventure. 
What I'm looking for is a little excitement. <gasps> Road games. Across 1,600 miles of desert highway, they're playing games of violence and sudden death. someone doesn't stop soon, there won't be anyone left alive to play. Road Games. <laughs>